Martini Theatre on the Air is proud to present the man who would be Sherlock Holmes. Episode 8 A gallery of hooligans, scalawags and thieves, including Dixie and Stockdale, sit eating like swine at the trough. Above them, Dr. Watson carefully moves out from the passageway and onto the balcony, inching his way along the rock wall side unseen. Fanny Lynn Monroe then walks into the laboratory, counting a drinking jug between her two others, to pour the contents into Dixie's goblet. No, now I wouldn't mind having a go, having a go. I wouldn't mind having a go with this one here. Need you be reminded that the beast fancies her as well, and I don't think you'll take too kindly to you mucking up her arm like you've been doing now. Yeah, yeah, um. You'll be running along now. And so Fanny does just that. To run up the stairs and scurry down the balcony passing a dark crevice in the rock, where Dr. Watson reaches out to her with lightning speed to cover up her mouth and pull her into the alcove. Learn to keep it quiet, girl. Bring us more grub. You're not leaving me here, are you? I have a friend under lock and key who needs an ally in my absence. That will have to be you. If we try to escape together, we will surely be caught. Now, there must be another way in here. There's a hidden door, built into the rock. It's over that way, down the far end of the biggest cave. There's a tree just outside with a broken swing hanging from it. I give you my word as a gentleman. Dr. Watson instinctively peers down and takes a long look at her two extremely large, pulsating, heaving breasts. Pillowy white pillows, fluttering up like alabaster curtains in a North Sea breeze, backing themselves away like a pair of cottontails into the briar, over and over and over again, with each despondent breath, prompting the good doctor to recall his days in battle, for God and country. But it was not these two extremely motivational constituents that pulled him through the darkest of these very dark days, but it was in fact the two in front of his face now. Make no mistake, the womanly attributes on display were nothing singular to the maidens of the Great British Isles. 
I mean to say, the world's full of them. They all have them, in all shapes and sizes. But the ones that can lean over the wood like no other, to be handing them his jar. Why, this was by far and away his preference. And Fanny Lynn Munro was the very embodiment of that prejudice. And one worth, whatever the cost may be, surviving for. And that's exactly what he did. So, no matter what the degree of the danger in this particular sticky wicket, John Amish Watson would most certainly return. The Professor, asleep for the ages, suspended in the air next to the casing of his youth for replication. Next to him hangs an equally comatose Sherlock Holmes. Similar portions of the scalps have been shaved. Small incisions made upon the bared flesh where six rubber tubes jut out from the front and back of their skulls. Extended and dipping into the tank where all twelve penetrate the crown of Moriarty's spry biological twin. Von Lide steps up to a multi-knob lever-laden machine and begins to fiddle about with it. 
the immense clock-like wheels begin to rotate and interconnect with the others. Bomb light then cranks a lever down. Bubbles suffuse the greenish liquid of the tank. The professor's body begins to quiver and quake like a leaf at witness plunge as Von Lloyd heaves another jimmy up. Sherlock's body then begins to spasm as well. A pair of goons open the furnace door, revealing an intense white heat within. Another goon moves a metal plate with a tubular attachment in front of its opening. Straight away, a beam of light shoots out from it and into a chrome basket adjoined to the largest of the conjugating wheels. Sparks fly as it begins to spin and the basket glows bright. Bomb light pinches a patch of knobs. The bubbling green fluid turns a deep rich blue and just moments later, the casing begins to drain of all its watery content. Moriarty quivers a bit less, but Sherlock Holmes has already fallen limp. Bomb light motions, a goon in turn pulls an enormous chain. The case begins to lean back into an horizontal position. Bomb light then slams down one last lever. night train roars through a thick country mist looking to be fog as Watson and his mount ride along a breast. Not his preferred breast, but a breast nonetheless. Grabbing hold of a steel ladder attached to its side. He pulls himself onto it to take him north, back up to London town.
A sheet is drawn across the dead white face of the elderly professor as the curious eyes of his dedicated horde focus on the wet body of his evergreen Janice. No more than thirty years out of the box, supine and as stiff as the table it lay upon. Vom Lied elevates her wrist in pursuit of a pulse, and within seconds of doing so, draws a sheet over its face as well. All heads bow with grave disappointment. Then, its chest heaves, its back arches, its mouth ajar to aid in the dispensation of a greenish-brown acidic fluid so that it may gasp for air. Martini Theatre on the Air would like to extend our warmest regards to you, our most sincere listener, for tuning in this evening. We would also like to take this moment to thank the Martini Theatre players whose tireless effort and patience made tonight's broadcast possible. They are as follows. The Dislayed, Victoria Turner, Kerry Lynn Weber, Toby Williams, Michael Northergut, Jim Dana Tall, Timothy James Walsh, Stephen West, D.C. McCauley, Elmer V. Jackson, Robert Romeo Coates, Charles Waterman, and J.D. Booth. Martini Theatre would also like to thank Brian Conwell for his melodious introduction. The Man Who Would Be Sherlock Holmes was written and dramatized by Walter Barclay Campbell based upon the award-winning screenplay of the same name. Until next week, this is M-T-O-T-A, signing off.